On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and he did not know where it, had come, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May God bless the reading of the gospel. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Before I got married, I thought that weddings were pure magic. Everyone shows up to celebrate the happy couple dressed to the nines. There are beautiful flowers. There are thoughtful songs picked out. There's a homily about love and unity. The reception, there's always delicious food. There's always cake. There's always dancing and music. And what is not to love about a wedding? Again, going to them before my wedding day, I just thought, wow, I could do this every day. And then I planned my own wedding and learned that weddings are not magic, but actually a lot of work. To pull off the things like the beautiful flowers, the ceremony, the reception takes, counting on vendors from the photographer to the florist to the caterer or the baker, and then you're inviting people from all over, your family and friends, to join you on a specific day at a specific time, hoping that it's not too hot or not too cold and that it doesn't rain. And then you have to decide what everyone will wear, what they will eat when they come, where everyone will stay. There are so many little details that go into the happiest day of your life. And of course, weddings are wonderful. I still love weddings, but now I know that there are also a lot of things that could go wrong when you have all of these things that you're hoping will come together just as you planned it. Because of this, I decided to poll my social media this week and ask them if anything went wrong on their wedding day, just thinking, I'm sure my friends have some good stories. And I was right, I'll say that. There were a lot of stories about wilting flowers or a cake having a big crack in it or forgetting something important at home, but all of those seemed rather tame compared to some of the worst stories that I heard about. I'd like to share some of those with you now. So one response said, the moment we walked out of the door to go to the sanctuary, the bottom fell out, and there was no covered walkway, so cue the bridesmaids getting trash bags and jackets and whatever they could find to cover us on the way to the sanctuary, and they were drenched for the wedding. Another said, my fiance got into a car accident on the way to the ceremony, 
like a multiple car Atlanta car accident, emergency vehicles had to come. The two dads looked at each other and said, do you think he's going to come? That sort of thing. Needless to say, he was very late to the ceremony. Another said, we had an August outdoor wedding, and everyone was hot and dehydrated, and multiple people had to go to the hospital. Another said, the building had an electrical fire the week before our wedding. The sanctuary was ruined. We had to have the ceremony in the fellowship hall and make do. And as a sign of the times, many of the answers included COVID. Wedding days are beautiful and filled with so much joy and excitement and anticipation and expectation. And since the beginning of time, since our gospel story today, there have been things that naturally go wrong on days that hold so much pressure. Weddings at the time of the story of the Cana and Galilee wedding, they didn't have a few hour reception like we have after weddings. Instead, they had a seven-day feast at the groom's house. So that's where our story picks up today, is at this feast. And we read that Jesus and his mother and his disciples have all been invited to come to this party. And in verse 3, we find out what went wrong on this wedding day. They have run out of wine. And this is a problem on two levels. First, this means if they've run out of wine, that people may leave early. The celebration may be cut short which leads to the bigger problem of if these people who are hosting this party were seen as unhospitable, running out of a food or a drink, it would be really embarrassing and people would remember forever. So that was the biggest thing happening here is that it would be seen as unhospitable and therefore be very embarrassing for the families hosting this wedding party. So Jesus's mother is the one who notices the problem and we can kind of imagine her calling Jesus over to the side and whispering, they've run out of wine. Can you do anything to help? Like, surely you can do something. And at this point, Jesus hadn't started performing his miracles, but as a mother, she knew. She knew that he probably could. But he responds in this kind of bizarre way that leaves us wondering, does he always speak to his mother this way? He says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. A famous New Testament scholar named Gail O'Day says that though these words sound very harsh to our modern ears, that it wasn't really harsh at all. Jesus was just trying to say, this was a, this was a phrase of disengagement. Jesus was saying, mom, this isn't our wedding. This is not our responsibility. This is not our problem. We don't have to be worried about the wine being out. And then the phrase, my hour has not yet come, was Jesus saying to his mother that I belong to a higher power. I'm going to follow the inner calling of God on my life even more than I follow the call of my mom, who I obviously respect. Certainly Jesus has more important things to do and to be concerned with than wine running out at a wedding. But as his mother seemed to know, Jesus eventually does do something to help this family. So Jesus asked the servants to fill up these six water jars with water all the way to the brim. And when they bring it back, the chief steward tastes it and says, this has turned into the best wine they've served all night. So it is wine not only of great quantity, but of great quality. 
This is the first recorded miracle in the Gospel of John. When we think of Jesus' miracles, typically we think of him helping someone in desperate need or exercising a demon or raising someone from the dead. These are the miracles we think of, alleviating suffering, making a way when there is no way. But this is a little bit surprising that this is the first miracle in this gospel. It almost seems a bit frivolous. There's no desperate, life-threatening need that Jesus steps in and helps. Rather, the crisis is that the wine has run out, and it leads us to wonder why Jesus would choose this moment to begin performing these miracles. The image of a wedding banquet is used frequently in scripture to paint a picture of the restoration of Israel. We hear about the bride and the bridegroom often in scripture, and there's also a lot in scripture about fine wine. Amos speaks of the day when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. Isaiah speaks of the feast that God will prepare for all peoples, a feast of rich food, of a feast of well-aged wines strained clear. Wine is frequently used as a symbol of joy and anticipation of the day when we experience salvation. So the abundance of the fine wine at this wedding is a symbol of the, the joy that awaits all people who will one day be with God for eternity. Until recently, I didn't know how much time and meticulous energy went into making wine. You know, we don't have many vineyards around here. But when we went to California two weeks ago, we went to Napa Valley for a day and we toured a winery and we went on the tour with a winemaker, which was really cool. I mean, I've never met a winemaker like that before. And he told us all about how they make wine. So first he told us that Napa Valley is one of the biggest places of making wine in the United States because of its location. It's located between two huge mountain ranges in a valley, Napa Valley, and it has several different types of soil there. It has like rocky soil, clay type soil, sand type soil, and this makes it possible for them to grow multiple different types of grapes, which then are turned into multiple different types of wine. And because they're between these two mountain ranges, they are protected from the most intense weather. So it doesn't get as hot there as it gets in other places. It doesn't get as icy or snowy there as it gets other places. So that's why this has become kind of the Goldilocks place in California where they make a lot of wine. So he told us there are five main steps that they take in producing wine. The first, of course, is harvesting, taking the grapes off of the stems. And then they put it into a de-stimmer machine, which actually removes all of the extra little pieces of the stem and crushes them and starts to extract the juice from the grapes. At this point, some of the peels of the grapes remain if it's going to turn into red wine one day. But if it's white wine, they remove everything except for the juice. And then they are put into these huge cylindrical tanks, and this is for the fermentation stage. They add yeast to it, the sediment falls to the bottom, the sugar sticks to the side, and there's a lot of science that happens in there. There's a lot that happens to create the wine. After the fermentation, it goes into the fourth stage, which is the aging process. Again, they have different types of things that it ages in, whether it's a barrel for some, sometimes it is a steel tank. 
And they sit in these tanks to age for the right amount of time, again, depending on the type of wine they're making. So some white wines are ready after only a few months of aging in one of these containers, but red wines can take 18 to 24 months to come to its full expression. But after that, then we come to the fifth stage, which is the actual bottling, when they take it out of the container it had been held in and into the bottles that we see in stores, that we enjoy at home. It takes a lot to get a bottle of wine. It's not something that most people could just say, water into wine, and it happens. It is a slow, meticulous, science type thing that happens. This has been refined and practiced for thousands of years all over the world. And yet we see in the story that Jesus is able to turn these six water jars into the equivalent of 605 bottles of the very best wine without so much as a direct command. This may not be a healing or deliverance type story, but this is a miracle of abundance. And in changing this water into wine, Jesus is showing humanity the love and care that he has for us in all of our moments. In the very last verse of the passage, John tells us explicitly why Jesus has chose to do this miracle. It says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus did this to reveal his glory. The word glory has been historically really difficult to translate. And if you came to our summer Bible study, we talked about this word during one of the sessions, and we kind of wrestled with it. The word glory in the New Testament comes from the word doxa, which we get the doxology, which we sing every week after taking the offering. And that means praise and honor and majesty. But the Hebrew version of the same word means heaviness or weight. So when we try and bring these words together, it's kind of difficult. We kind of see why the translators have struggled with what does glory actually mean? Well, we can tell from other stories where people have seen glimpses of God's glory that it is somehow a heavy, weighty majesty that people see. We see in the Bible that Moses saw a glimpse of the glory of God at the burning bush. The glory of God is revealed to Ezekiel in a vision. The glory of God shone around the angels as they appeared to the shepherds in the field after Jesus was born. The glory of God appeared to the disciples in the moment of the transfiguration up on the mountain. In each of these accounts, the glory of God is something that is so unbelievable, so majestic, so heavy, that people often fall to the ground. They shield their eyes. They become afraid because this glory is something that we cannot fully experience in this life. God tells Moses that in Exodus 33. He says, a person cannot see the glory of God and live. So perhaps Jesus, being one with God and knowing humanity intimately, knew that this wedding, this feast, was not the time to reveal his full glory to everyone present. Because when Jesus reveals his glory in this story, it's only to a small amount of people. It's to the disciples and it's to the servants who had seen that there was water and somehow now there was wine. 
But the fruit of this, the result of this miracle is that the disciples believed. They heard Jesus, they heard what he had to say, and now they saw with their own eyes he did something that humans cannot do. This was not magic. This was something much greater, the glory of God revealed at this wedding. John uses the story of Cana at Galilee to illustrate what he means by glory. It is the glory of the incarnation in itself, the wonder that God would come down to earth in the form of a human to live and dwell among us, to show us little images of what it is like to be with God. Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine is a sign that in him, life, joy, and salvation have arrived on earth. The glory of God is here. The God of the universe has showed up to shower us with love in abundance and in, in an extravagant type of way. And it's almost too much to handle. It almost makes us want to fall, makes us want to shield our eyes. But the beauty is that God's glory continues showing up to us in sometimes small ways, in sometimes big ways, but always in surprising ways. So our job as people who have seen this glory revealed is to continue looking for it, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts to the ways that God is still revealing God's glory here among us. And by God's grace, may these glimpses increase our faith in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Amen.